Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. Several years ago, the Jewish intellectual historian Paul Mendes Flohr delivered a lecture at Oxford entitled Jewish Philosophy, an Obituary. He meant the title to be provocative. Rumors of its death, he wrote, glossing Mark Twain, are exaggerated. But nevertheless, Mendes Flohr maintained that Jewish philosophy is mortally ill. He believed that Jewish philosophers were a dying breed and that the Jews urgently needed what he calls a reinvigorated cadre of them. For Jewish philosophy, he boldly asserted, serves to secure Israel from idolatry and a tribalization of God and Torah. Quote, by viewing itself before the mirror of philosophy, Judaism was obliged to bear, so to speak, its best countenance and to flesh out the universal implications of biblical teachings, end quote. According to Mendes Flohr, our time has not been ripe for such philosophical work. On the one hand, in response to the immense trauma of the Holocaust, Jews have been preoccupied with the tribal, so to speak, with communal solidarity at the expense of the uncharted intellectual adventure of philosophizing. On the other hand, the philosophical climate of postmodernism as Mendes Flohr sees it, signals, quote, a retreat from a universal, indivisible truth, which has a deleterious effect on metaphysically and ontologically oriented philosophy, end quote. Those who do practice Jewish philosophy, he felt, speak primarily to one another and have not found more than a limited resonance within the larger Jewish community, let alone beyond it. I've thought for some years that Professor Mendes Flores' assessment is far too grim. There is something new and important going on in American Jewish letters and learning. Jewish philosophy no longer refers solely to works in Arabic, medieval philosophical Hebrew, or German, but in fact to contemporary constructive philosophizing in English. Jewish philosophy is now something done by philosophers and not only studied by historians. Whether our somewhat flamboyant title, The Renaissance of Jewish Philosophy in America, overstates the case is open to debate. But that there is a vibrant Jewish philosophy in America is not. The title of this conference signals the newness, or better, the renewal, of this mode of intellectual engagement in contemporary American Jewry. Our purpose here is to explore it, to understand it, to celebrate it, and to further it. I'm immensely grateful to the philosophers who shared our enthusiasm for this exploration and who have joined us for this conference. You will meet them in due course. And I'm immensely grateful to the Madison Program for responding so vigorously to my proposal. Without the support and hard work of Professor Robert George, the director of the Madison Program, and Dr. Bradford Wilson, its associate director, Judy Rifkin, its coordinator, and Reggie Cohen, its program manager, this conference would simply not be taking place. So we are all very much in their debt. 
And now to tonight's program. All Jewish philosophers working today, I think it's fair to say, stand on the shoulders, or to switch metaphors, in the shadow of the German Jewish giants who preceded them. How do we make sense of our work in consequence of theirs? To help us with this phase of the inquiry, we'll begin with papers by Professor Leora Botnitsky and Professor Martin Yaffe. Uh, Professor Botnitsky teaches in the religion department here, and Professor Yaffe in the philosophy department at the University of North Texas. To not take any more of their time, I will direct you to their bios uh, in the booklet that you received. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to the Madison Program and to the Finkelstein Institute and everyone else uh, who helped make this conference possible. Uh, it's a great and daunting privilege for me to be the first speaker tonight in our conference on the Renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. All the speakers that follow me are precisely those who have created such a renaissance and are pioneers in what has become the field of Jewish philosophy in America. The task that I have set for myself in this paper is a prelude to the talks that will come. I would like to outline briefly what American Jewish philosophy looks like when viewed from the perspective of German Jewish thought. This is important for at least two reasons. The first is institutional, the second philosophical. In the first quarter of the 20th century, German Jewry was at most one-fourth the size of Eastern European Jewry. That is, there were at most 800,000 German Jews compared to 5 million Eastern European Jews. At the same time, German Jews lived for the most part only in Germany and in small outposts in America. In contrast, Eastern European Jews lived not only in Eastern Europe, but also constituted most of the Jewish communities throughout the British Empire, Palestine, the United States, France, and even Germany. Yet despite the relatively small size of the German Jewish community, as well as its relatively minor geographic prevalence, the study of German Judaism has dominated the academic study of Judaism. The reasons for this are many, but perhaps the central reason is that what we call today Jewish or Judaic studies programs are the direct heirs of German Jewish efforts at creating the enterprise of modern Jewish scholarship which has right, rightfully taken its place alongside of other humanistic disciplines in the secular academy. From an institutional point of view, any attempt at constructing an academic field of Jewish philosophy of necessity takes place against the backdrop of the history of Jewish studies, which has still today a decidedly German orientation. This philosophical point follows from the institutional point. If German Jewish thought is the backdrop against which American Jewish philosophy constructs itself, where does American Jewish philosophy differ from German Jewish thought, and why does it differ as it does? In what follows, I will attempt to offer a simple yet important answer to this question. My suggestion is that German Jewish philosophers are united by one important unifying factor, which is the attempt to define Judaism as a religion. This is the case, I will argue, not only for the liberal philosophy of the father of German Jewish thought, Moses Mendelssohn, but also for the last great German Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig, who attempted to turn away from German Jewish apologetics toward what he argued was a more authentic Jewish point of view. From Mendelssohn forward, German Jewish philosophers strained to define Judaism in terms of a religion. This meant that German Jewish philosophers could not talk constructively about politics, or perhaps better put, 
When German Jewish philosophers did talk about politics, they did so only in the context of maintaining that Judaism as Judaism and Jews as Jews had nothing to do with or say about politics. In contrast, as I will argue in the conclusion of my paper, a defining feature of the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America is the ability and need to reflect precisely on politics from the perspective of Judaism. Uh, but now's the time for disclaimers before I make my argument. Okay. Before turning specifically to Mendelssohn and Rosenzweig, I would like to make two important qualifications to my argument that follows. First, my criticism of the intellectual results of German Jewish philosophy is not meant in any way to anachronistically and unfairly delegitimize the German Jewish philosophical enterprise in light of the fate of German and indeed European Jewry. Instead, I would like to consider the structure of German Jewish philosophy on its own terms in order to focus on the profound conundrum in which German Jewish thought from Mendelssohn to Rosenzweig continued to find itself. This leads to my second, perhaps more important qualification. The story that I'm about to tell about German Jewish thought is in many ways oversimplified. While, as I will argue, German Jewish thinkers continued to define Judaism as a religion, they often did so in ways that were, odds, were at odds with their own descriptions of Judaism, as well as in tension with the objectives of their own arguments. Because of constraints of time, I will only be able to point to some of this internal tension briefly with regard to Mendelssohn's philosophy. But it is a tension that is present in the other thinkers I will mention, and especially in the German Jewish philosopher who I will unfortunately not have time to discuss at all, uh, which is, who is Hermann Cohen. It is the creatively contradictory nature of much of, of the German Jewish attempt to fit Judaism into the category of religion while denying that Judaism has any particular political authority that has made a philosophical retrieval of German Jewish philosophy possible in contemporary American Jewish philosophy. And this retrieval has played a significant part in the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. My point then is not to present an absolute dichotomy between German Jewish philosophy and American Jewish philosophy, but rather to show how Jewish philosophy in America works itself out in large part through a rejection of a problem set in motion by, but also recognized by, German Jewish philosophers. So to begin to make this argument, uh, it is helpful to take a clue from an important German Jewish emigre to the United States, Leo Strauss. As he put it, quote, the weakness of liberal democracy in Germany explains why the situation of the indigenous Jews was more precarious in Germany than in any other Western country. According to liberal democracy, the bond of society is universal human morality, whereas religion, positive religion, is a private affair, end quote. Strauss's comment comes from the preface to the 1965 English translation of Spinoza's Critique of Religion. And Spinoza is, of course, quite relevant not only to the history of the development of theories of liberal democracy, but also to the particular quagmire German-Jewish thought, beginning with Mendelssohn, found itself in. Arguing that the Hebrew prophets were private men with conflicting perceptions of reality resulting from their overactive imaginations Spinoza maintained that while everyone is entitled to their religious opinions, religious opinions without reference to philosophical truth or morality cannot by definition lay claim to truth philosophically or politically. More particularly in regard to Judaism, Spinoza famously contended that the laws of the Hebrews are pertinent only in the context of their original political meaning. Quote, ceremonial observances form no part of the divine law, and nothing had to do with blessedness and virtue, but had reference only to the elections of the Hebrews 
that is, to their temporal bodily happiness and the tranquility of their kingdom, and therefore they were only valid while that kingdom lasted, end quote. Because the ceremonial law no longer corresponds to a political kingdom, Spinoza's argument concludes that Jewish law is not the divine law and that post-biblical Jewish law is meaningless. Beginning with Moses Mendelssohn, German-Jewish philosophers accepted Spinoza's framework for thinking about politics and philosophy, even when they attempted to reject his conclusions. Mendelssohn followed Spinoza in maintaining that the ceremonial law makes no claims on philosophy or politics, but he denied against Spinoza that the meaning of the ceremonial law was political. As Mendelssohn put it in his public defense of Judaism in Jerusalem, quote, Judaism boasts no exclusive revelation of eternal truths, The voice which lets itself be heard on Sinai on that great day did not proclaim, I am the eternal, your God, the necessary independent being, omnipotent and omniscient, that recompenses men in a future life according to their deeds. This is the universal religion of mankind, not Judaism, end quote. In contrast to the universal religion of mankind, which Mendelssohn equates with morality, Judaism, Mendelssohn contends, is a historical temporal truth that makes demands only on the Jewish people and not on society and morality at large. In making a distinction between the universal religion of mankind and Judaism, Mendelssohn anticipates another major major tenet of German-Jewish liberalism. Here again, Strauss offers us a helpful description when he suggests that German-Jewish thinkers embraced a, quote, distinction between state and society or the recognition of the private sphere protected by the law but impervious to the law with the understanding that, above all, religion as particular religion belongs to the private sphere, end quote. Mendelssohn distinguishes between the laws of the state that by definition may demand adherence and the realm of Jewish society that by definition makes no such demands. But this distinction, both in the context of Jerusalem and in the context of Judaism more broadly, is particularly ironic and telling. After all, in defending Judaism to his Christian critics, Mendelssohn claims in Jerusalem that, quote, Judaism knows of no revealed religion in the sense in which Christians understand this term. The Israelites possess a divine legislation, laws, commandments, ordinances, rules of life, instruction in the will of God as to how they should conduct themselves in order to attain temporal and eternal felicity, end quote. On the one hand, Mendelssohn claims that Judaism is not a religion because Judaism demands action, not belief. This is where he claims Judaism differs from Christianity. But on the other hand, Mendelssohn defines Jewish law in completely apolitical terms. That is precisely in contrast to the laws of the state. As he puts it, quote, Judaism is religion, knows of no punishment, no other penalty than the one the remorseful sinner voluntarily imposes on himself. It knows of no coercion, uses only the staff called gentleness, and affects only mind and heart, end quote. Very fundamentally, Mendelssohn's definition and description of Judaism is at odds with itself. Judaism is not a religion in the way that his Lutheran interlocutors understand religion, that is, in terms of faith, because Judaism is a law, a religion of law and action. Furthermore, Mendelssohn maintains, Jewish law is not a deadening legalism, as some, some caricatures would have it, but a living script. For these reasons, Mendelssohn would seem to reject the liberal definition of religion offered by his younger contemporary, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who argued that, quote, religion's essence is neither thinking nor acting, but to intuition and feeling, end quote. For Mendelssohn, the revealed legislation of Judaism, as opposed to Schleiermacher's liberal faith, is oriented toward both thinking and acting. In Mendelssohn's words, quote, among all the prescriptions and ordinances of the Mosaic law, there is not a single one which says you shall believe or not believe. 
They all say, you shall do or not do. The ceremonial law itself is a kind of living script, rousing the mind and heart, full of meaning, never ceasing to inspire contemplation and to provide the occasion and opportunity for oral instruction, end quote. Yet along with this rejection of the boundaries placed on the concept of religion by Protestants during the Enlightenment, Mendelssohn also removes any conflict between Judaism and universal truths, what he calls the universal religion of mankind, and also any conflict between Judaism and the state by claiming in both cases that any conflict that would seem to arise is the result of a category error. Judaism is distinct from and not a threat to universal truth, just as Judaism and indeed Jewish law is distinct from and not a threat to state law. From a formal perspective then, if not from the perspective of content, Mendelssohn's definition of Judaism does very much fit with Schleiermacher's liberal Protestant definition of religion. As Schleiermacher puts it, quote, religion maintains its own sphere and its own character only by completely removing itself from the sphere and character of spe speculation as well as from that of praxis, end quote. Mendelssohn wants to have it both ways. Judaism is a religion of law requiring action and stimulating contemplation. Yet when it comes to questions of universal action, that is civil law, and when it comes to universal contemplation, that is the eternal truths of philosophy, Judaism remains separate and irrelevant. To apply Schleiermacher's words to Mendelssohn, we could say that for Mendelssohn, Jewish law maintains its own sphere and its own character only by completely removing itself from the sphere and character of universal speculation as well as, that, as, well as from that of universal praxis. It's important to underscore, of course, that the motivation for Mendelssohn's argument is both obvious and honorable. He is compelled to defend Judaism or risk being converted, forced to convert to Christianity, all without offending his enlightened Christian audience. And given that when he writes Jerusalem, Mendelssohn and the Jewish community for whom he speaks has no civil rights whatsoever, the caution that Mendelssohn was forced to use when writing Jerusalem cannot be overstated. Nevertheless, the tension between Mendelssohn's claim that Jewish law de demands contemplation and action, and his claim that Jewish law is in essence irrelevant to the pursuit of universal truth and morality, bears itself out also in the subsequent fate of Mendelssohn's philosophy. On the one hand, Mendelssohn provides a very traditional conception of the Jewish obligation to obey Jewish law. Quote, he who is not born into the law need not bind himself to the law, but he who is born into the law must live according to the law and die according to the law, end quote. Yet on the other hand, Mendelssohn provides no philosophical or theological justification for why Jews should obey the law. And in fact, by virtue of his own definitions, he cannot provide any philosophical or theological justification for Jews to obey the law because he has argued that Jewish law is a temporal historical truth whose legitimacy is irrelevant to philosophical truth and theological belief. When the liberal society that Mendelssohn had hoped for was, at least to some extent, finally actualized, the question of why Jews should remain Jews would be one Jews continually ask themselves. From Mendelssohn forward, this question would be answered within Mendelssohn's framework, which denied, as we have seen, that Judaism as Judaism has anything to say about politics. The birth of Reform Judaism was, of course, predicated on precisely the claim that Judaism does not constitute a separate political authority. Abraham Geiger, Reform Judaism's founding father, maintained that the study of Judaism can only be a history of, quote, spiritual achievements because it is precisely to its independence from political status that Judaism owes its survival, end quote. Geiger, in fact, linked his non-political view of Judaism with a commitment to the German national cause. Quote, the Germans were able, able to give birth to the great discoveries, to free the spirit of the Reformation, and to 
the glory of literature of worldwide import. It is our wish that the new United Reich, led by its imperial dynasty, may be able to record similar achievements, end quote. Geiger's notion of the spiritual achievement of, Ju- of Judaism went hand-in-hand hand with his attempt to rid the Judaism of his day of any notion of collective politics or messianic hope. Geiger rightly recognized that from the perspectives of Judaism and Jewish history, only the existence of a Jew- synagogue state could undermine the German state. His claims about Judaism's spiritual achievement bear directly on his affirmation on the possibility of German political liberalism, defined as the privatization of religious faith within a neutral political order for Jews and Germans alike. It's worth noting that even modern orthodoxy, founded by Samson Raphael Hirsch, followed the framework set by Mendelssohn, which separated Jewish life from political life at large. Significantly, this was the case even when Hirsch criticized the reform movement for its claim that Judaism is a religion. He argued that, quote, Judaism is not a religion. The synagogue is not a church and the rabbi is not a priest. Judaism is not a mere adjunct to life. It comprises all of life. To be a Jew is not a mere part. It is the sum total of our task in life. To be a Jew in the synagogue, in the kitchen, in the field, in the warehouse, in the office, in the pulpit, as father and mother, as servant and master, as man and a citizen, with, with one's thought, in word and in deed, in enjoyment and privation, with the needle and the graving tool, with the pen and the chisel, that is what it means to be a Jew. End quote. Yet despite these assertions, assertions, Hirsch nonetheless maintained that, quote, it is certainly possible for us to attach ourselves to the state wherever we might find ourselves without harm to the spirit of Judaism. After all, our former independent statehood did not represent the essence or the purpose of Israel's national existence, but merely a means to the fulfillment of its spiritual task. It is precisely the purely spiritual nature of Israel's nationhood that makes it possible for Jews everywhere to tie themselves fully to the various states in which they live. End quote. Franz Rosenzweig is the German Jewish philosopher who perhaps did mo- most to try to move beyond Mendelssohn's framework. As Rosenzweig remarked, quote, from Mendelssohn on, our entire people has subjected itself to the torture of this embarrassing questioning. The Jewishness of every individual has squirmed on the needlepoint of why. End quote. Rosenzweig's efforts at Jewish education were aimed at ridding the German Jew of the need to answer this question. Like Hirsch, Rosenzweig contended that Jewish life is not a piece among other pieces of a Jew's identity, but rather being Jewish encompasses what he called the whole of a Jew's existence. As he put it, quote, it is necessary for the German Jew to free himself from those stupid claims that would impose Judaism on him as a canon of definite circumscribed Jewish duties, vulgar orthodoxy, or Jewish tasks, vulgar Zionism, or, God forbid, Jewish ideas, vulgar liberalism. If the German Jew has prepared himself quite simply to have everything that happens to him, inwardly and outwardly, happen to him in a Jewish way, his vocation, his nationality, his marriage, and even, if that has to be, his Judaism, then he may be certain that with the simple assumption of that infinite pledge, he will in reality become holy Jew, end quote. But even Rosenzweig was unable to transcend Mendelssohn's paradigm. While Mendelssohn rejected his German Jewish, while Rosenzweig, sorry, rejected his German Jewish predecessor's confining of Judaism to the private realm, and while he, like Hirsch, explicitly rejected the category religion, Rosenzweig nevertheless remained unable to consider the ways in which Judaism as Judaism, or Jews as Jews, might have an impact on political life. Indeed, rather than insisting that Jewish wholeness requires a particularly Jewish involvement in politics, 
whatever that might mean, Rosenzweig, in fact, insisted far more than his predecessors had that Judaism as Judaism was completely separate from politics. As he put it to his friend, his friend Eugen Rosenstock, quote, is not part of the price that the synagogue must pay for the blessing of being already in the Father's presence, that she must wear the bandages of unconsciousness over her eyes, end quote. As Rosenzweig argues at length in part three of the Star of Redemption, the bandages of, of unconsciousness blind the Jew particularly to politics. Schleiermacher's modern definition of religion is again pertinent. Religion maintains its own sphere and its own character only by completely removing itself from the sphere and character of speculation as well as from that of practice. Rosenzweig's understanding of Judaism fits this description because his claim is precisely that Judaism maintains its own sphere and its own character only by completely removing itself from the political life of the world around it. Like Mendelssohn, Rosenzweig finds himself in the position of describing and defending Judaism and particularly Jewish law as, to use Mendelssohn's phrase again, a living script encompassing and guiding the whole life of Jews. Yet also like Mendelssohn, Rosenzweig simultaneously feels compelled to limit this living script when it comes to modern political life. While the American context has certainly seen repetitions of the, this German-Jewish paradigm, particularly in the ideologies of the institutional inheritors of German-Jewish thought, the Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox movements, much of the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America is, I would argue, founded on a rethinking of this very position, often through a retrieval and working out of some of the productive tensions within German-Jewish thought. Uh, and in fact, uh, the work of our organizer, Alan Middleman, and the work of our first panelist tomorrow, David Novak and Kenneth Seeskin, exemplifies the retrieval of German-Jewish philosophy and the movement beyond it in an American context. So you can see what that looks like then, if that's what they're going to do. Okay. There are no doubt uh, many reasons for the shift among American Jewish philosophers who feel comfortable and even obliged to talk about a particularly Jewish contribution to American political life. At least two obvious reasons come to mind. The first, the complicated interplay between religion and political life that has marked the United States since its founding. And second, the dominance of the descendants of Eastern European Jews in the United States who had very different conceptions of Judaism than their German Jewish counterparts had. But I'm going to leave discussion of all that to other people. Uh, in order to focus instead in my remaining time on an unlikely pair of American Jewish thinkers, both emigres, who rejected precisely the German-Jewish paradigm that I have described tonight. It is my suggestion that it has been the subsequent drawing out of the implications of their very different philosophies that has provided the seeds for the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. These two thinkers are Leo Strauss and Mordecai Kaplan, and they are important both for their deep, if surprising, similarities as well as for their profound and ultimate differences. Together, they represent the possibility of a real and important engagement between Jewish philosophy and American politics. But together, they also represent the ways in which the implications of this engagement are by no means obvious or determined in advance. I've already mentioned Strauss and his criticism of German-Jewish thought and its faith in the divide between universal human morality and the private affair of Jewish religion. As is well known, Strauss called this divide the theological-political predicament, by which he meant, among other things, the tension between the modern Jewish claim that religion is a private matter and the theological political context that defined pre-modern Judaism in which the relationship between God and the people of Israel is mediated by law. 
Mendelssohn's strained attempt to defend the necessity and centrality of Jewish law for the Jewish people while denying that the law has any political or philosophical implications embodies precisely this tension. As I tried to show before, the strain, the strain dynamic set in motion by Mendelssohn plays itself out not only in liberal Jewish philosophy in the German-Jewish context, but also in the invention of German-Jewish orthodoxy, as well as in Franz Rosenzweig's arguably neo-orthodox philosophy. Remarkably, in his 1934 magnum opus, Judaism as a Civilization, Kaplan anticipates Strauss's 1965 analysis of the Jewish theologico-political predicament and applies it to the modern ideological movements of Judaism, which, of course, originated in Germany. As he put it in regard to the to reform Judaism, quote, only in Wonderland can there be a cat which leaves its grin behind it, and the world of reality is not feasible to try to have the grin without the cat. That experiment has been undertaken by reformism in trying to have the Jewish religion without the living entity to which that religion be belongs, without a functioning Jewish people, end quote. And as Kaplan put it in regard to modern orthodoxy, quote, what, in short, is this law of God, which no longer regulates our workday life and which, outside of marriage and divorce laws, functions only in matters which least affect social relationships and the adjustment of conflicting interests, end quote. Kaplan concluded his analysis of the state of contemporary Jewish life by arguing that, quote, paradoxical as it may sound, the spiritual regener regeneration of the Jewish people demands that religion ceases to be its sole preoccupation, end quote. His proposed solution was to, get, was to view Judaism not merely as a religion, but as a civilization that embraces all avenues of life, including land, language, literature, mores, laws, and folkways. By viewing Judaism as a civilization, but viewing Judaism as a civilization was not just a matter of adding spheres of life to the sphere of religion. Instead, argued Kaplan, the Jewish religion must also rid itself of certain elements. Most famously, of course, Kaplan contended that a rethinking, if not a disavowal, of a supernatural conception of God and any notion of Jewish chosenness was required. As he put it, quote, the modern man who is used to thinking in terms of humanity as a whole can no longer reconcile himself to the notion of any people or body of believers constituting a type of society which may be described as belonging to a supernatural order. This is essentially what the doctrine of election has hitherto implied, end quote. It is, of course, here that the differences between Kaplan and Strauss arise. While the starting point for both of their thoughts was the rejection of the German-Jewish paradigm and the demand for honest and sober recognition of the, of the break with the Jewish past that, a, that modernity brings, their evaluations of modernity for Judaism, as well as of modernity itself, could not be more distinct. Ironically, it is Strauss, the non-believer, who emerges as the defender of the ultimate value of Jewish revelation as it has been classically understood. As he put, put it in what could seem like a direct criticism of Kaplan's position, but I, I don't think it was, uh, quote, I believe by simply replacing God by the creative genius of the Jewish people, one gives away, one deprives oneself, even if one does not believe, of a source of human understanding. Now, I do not wish to minimize folk dances, Hebrew speaking, and many other things, but I believe that they cannot possibly take the place of what is most profound in our tradition, end quote. What is most profound for Strauss in the Jewish tradition is a belief in a transcendent God who has revealed and continues to reveal himself to the Jewish people by the way of the Torah. Strauss, of course, unlike Kaplan, provided no solution to the theological-political predicament. But for Strauss, this is exactly the point. There is no solution. However, it is in recognized the irresol irresolvable problem of Judaism's relation to the modern world 
that Strauss sees the relevance of Judaism and indeed of Jewish chosenness for modern political life. As he put it, quote, finite relative problems can be solved, infinite absolute problems cannot be solved. In other words, human beings will never create a society which is free from contradictions. From every point of view, it looks as if the Jewish people were the chosen people, at least in the sense that the Jewish problem is the most manifest symbol of the human problem insofar as it is a social or political problem, end quote. For Kaplan, the Jewish problem is not an absolute problem, and neither are there absolute human problems. American society, in fact, provided for Kaplan the very possibility of the simultaneous resolution of Jewish and human problems. In his words, quote, the American Jew must be willing to live up to a program that spells nothing less than a maximum of Jewishness. True to his historic tradition, he should throw in his lot with all movements to further social justice and universal peace and bring to bear upon them the inspiration of, the his, of his history and religion, end quote. For Strauss, in contrast, America offered the possibility, and only the possibility, of a society and political order that would not demand or even strive for the resolution of the Jewish problem in particular and of human problems in general. In conclusion, as the pairing of Strauss and Kaplan shows, the practical political implications of a Jewish philosophical involvement with American politics remains uncertain and rightfully so. But taken together, Strauss and Kaplan do suggest a perhaps counterintuitive point about the engagement between modern philosophy and democratic politics. As they transform, if not reject, their German-Jewish predecessors, Strauss and Kaplan, despite their profound differences, agree that Judaism may thrive in a democratic society in which politics is the site of leg legitimate disagreement. So too, as the case of Germany shows, Judaism may fail to thrive in a society that demands consensus so much as to deny any political disagreement. The promise of America for both Kaplan and Strauss holds the possibility of an affirmation of Jewish difference. But the meaning of Jewish difference remains unresolved for both, for perhaps opposite reasons. Kaplan famously argues for the necessity of Jewish difference for what he called the hyphenated cultural allegiance of the citizen of, of the modern state. As he put it, quote, for a long time to come, citizen in the Western, citizenship in the Western world will take the form of hyphenism. Far from viewing the hyphenated cultural allegiance of the citizen of a modern state with alarm, we should rejoice that there is present in the body politic an influence counteracting the danger of chauvinism, end quote. Yet doesn't Kaplan's claim that Judaism is countercultural rest on the very disagreement that he wants to resolve? And if Kaplan does do away with the deep sources of Jewish disagreement with the prevailing culture, as exemplified by the doctrine of election, isn't Kaplan back to where Mendelssohn started? But while Kaplan may have overemphasized political agreements, Strauss may overemphasize disagreement. Where are the common sources of political agreement for Strauss? If the Jewish problem is the most manifest symbol of the human problem insofar as it is a social or political problem, on what basis should or can Jews become good democratic citizens? Surely Jews can align themselves with democratic politics because unlike other political orders, democracy leaves them alone. But for what reason can or should Jews actually acquire democratic virtues? Attempting to answer these twin challenges left by Kaplan and Strauss has provided the seeds for the blossoming of Jewish philosophy in America. I'm grateful to our organizers for bringing together for our conference many of the thinkers who have contributed to the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America and anticipate with excitement hearing their reflections on this and other problems. Thank you.
think we'll take both papers together and then have questions and discussion afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> I've uh, written at length on several widely scattered topics. These include, for example, how Maimonides and Aquinas read the biblical book of Job, whether Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice is anti-Jewish, and what makes Spinoza's theological political treatise the philosophical founding document of modern Jewish life and thought. If my work uh, has a unifying theme, it's the ongoing tension between Athens and Jerusalem, more exactly between philosophy on the one hand and Jewish thought on the other. I keep noticing how this tension shows up in the particular books I've mentioned and others. Still, I haven't written in a vacuum. After saying more about how I understand that tension, I'll indicate how the American setting in which I live and work has alerted me to the pressing need to explore it further. I can then say something about each of those three tension-riddled topics just mentioned. By philosophy, I mean philosophy as understood by Plato's Socrates. Socrates kept discovering in his conversations and his reading that he was not wise, though he would have liked to be. Instead, he had to be content with being a lover of wisdom, a philosophos in the strict meaning of that Greek word. By Jewish thought, on the other hand, I mean the wisdom embodied in the Torah. The Torah puts a description of its wisdom in Moses' mouth. I'm quoting. See, I've taught you statutes and ordinances, just as the Lord my God has commanded me, to do thus in the midst of the land that you're coming into to possess. You shall keep them and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nations, who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Whereas Socratic philosophers do not see themselves as wise except in connection with their lack of wisdom, though that is something, the Torah goes so far as to parade its wisdom in the eyes of the nations, i.e. to invite outside examination and comparison of its divinely revealed laws. Whether or how the Torah displays the wisdom sought by Socratic philosophers, then, turns out to be a question somehow encouraged by the Torah itself. At any rate, it's a question at the nerve center of my scholarly investigations. Or so I'd say in retrospect, though I do not recall starting this or that investigation by trying to force fit it into a prefabricated mold to that effect. Instead, I've been prodded and guided considerably by the live American setting in which I find myself. Let me indicate in, in general how that is so by reflecting on the sentiments expressed in George Washington's famous letter of August 1790 to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Washington addresses the Newport congregants not only as the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land, but also as his fellow citizens. Echoing the prophet Micah, he hopes that they'll continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Echoing as well the Declaration of Independence and the recently ratified Const 